In this episode of Over the Bonnet, I get to chat with a circus performer who's living his dream working as an acrobat and magician. Matt Casey began as a gymnast and has utilised those talents on stage while also performing a variety of close-up and stage magic, as well as being an accomplished mentalist and mind reader. Over the Bonnet with Mark Peepers. <laughs> well, at least the guests are good. You'll never know what happens with the conversation when it's over the bonnet. <laughs> You're kidding me, aren't you? Matt Casey, welcome to Over the Bonnet. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I believe you are a COVID refugee. I guess that's the uh, that's that's the term I've adopted for myself, yeah. What's happened? So we... Uh, uh, I say we, my partner and I, we've been full-time circus performers for a long time, uh, about 10 years for myself. And uh, yeah, like I say, we, um, we we just had the COVID call, I guess is what everyone's calling it. We, we realized it was a serious thing. It was, there's a couple of weeks there where everyone was like, oh, is it just a bad flu or is it a, <laughs> is it a uh, real thing? And once it became a real thing, I just had all of our work cancelled and we had to run up to Queensland before the borders closed and we've been stuck here ever since. You were down in Victoria? Down in Victoria, yeah. And what happened to the work down there? I mean, I think it happened everywhere. Uh, It's just that it's been an ongoing problem in Victoria. But what what happened here in, uh, what happened to us was obviously with social distancing and all of the other problems, it was just a huge, the first thing to go is the arts. With, without getting preachy about it. The first, <laughs> the first thing to go is the arts, always. Uh, and uh, corporate entertainment or any sort of um, live theatre and all of those sorts of things were the first things to get cancelled because they're often considered a luxury. And when everyone was like, well, social distancing is going to dry up our money, drying up our money means we've got to cut back on those luxuries. And unfortunately, our work was one of those things. So I had uh, two residencies and uh, about 12 different live stage shows all cancel within three days uh, just because I mean t- and again fair enough social distancing had to happen uh, and you can't justify a venue being half full and or even uh, it was going to be less than that People still got to pay the bills still got to pay the bills and they can't do that when uh, you're there. so yeah we had all of our work dry up uh, and I was lucky enough to have some parents up here that have spare rooms up here in the farm up on Mount Tambourine and so we managed to um we got over just we got over 12 hours after the borders closed for the very first time during covid so we had to do a stay at home for 2 weeks um, which we did and then yeah we've been up here ever since <laughs> so what was the mentality as you're thinking i've got to get out of here work's gone what were you thinking uh, it was less about getting out of here more about get somewhere where i know uh, not that we can be safe but know that we it was mostly about expenses, I think, is the best way to say it. Um, again, this was right at the start of COVID, which it's funny to look back on, even though it's only a year ago. Uh, it, was, it was still everyone wasn't really sure what was going to happen and what was going to ha- what was going on. All we knew was it was cutting down events, cutting all of, call it, cutting all of our work. Uh, and uh, you've probably seen a little bit of this as well, being in uh, production, but the, um, the work can be so sporadic. That when you've again, I've got I had three years worth of work cancel in just just three days. Basically. The residencies that you were talking about, yeah, what, residencies. What were you doing? Uh, I was performing at nightclubs as uh, I'm a 
acrobat and a roving magician. So I was doing magic tricks at bars uh, to, it was a, you've probably heard of them, Holy Moly, which is a big uh, franchise putt-putt golf uh, place. But the lines get quite long on weekends and so they employ entertainers to go up and entertain the lines so that they don't feel as long. Um, which is a funny gig, but it's a great gig. You meet a lot of great people and it's a really great uh, way. And a residency as a full-time performer is just, uh, its a, we call it the get lost money. So it's the kind of gig that you can keep. And if you've got that, you've got that regular enough income that when you get those calls about gigs that you normally wouldn't want to do, but you sometimes have to just for the cash, you can say, ah, get lost. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and they're a good thing to have. So uh, that was, I had two of those, both for the same franchise, but for different uh, versions of their nightclubs. What sort of people do you say? You met some great people in the audience or in the lines. Yeah. Any I mean, interesting, any standouts? Uh, oh, I wish I had a great analogy nothing to stand out it's just that you meet a lot of different people um it's a very popular club a lot of first dates a lot of first dates and uh doing an anniversary trick or a, a sort of a couple's trick you can sort of feel like you've had a part in making the <laughs> making it become a second date maybe making the magic happen. yeah making the magic happen yeah <laughs> by, by putting the the cliche photo <laughs> on the wall <laughs> but yeah no it's uh i can't i can't unfortunately can't think about any standouts i'm sorry what's a get lost gig what sort of thing do you not like to do oof uh how do i say this without ruining my work in the future (laughs) (laughs) um a lot of those are well the classic one in the arts is oh we could we can't pay you very much but think about the exposure (laughs) so your usual rate would be uh x and they offer you 30% of that because it's a big gig, you know, there'll be a lot of people there, you'll get more work from it in the, in the future. So you're taking what should be a $1,000 job, for, for an example, and you're doing it for $200, and it's four hours of your weekend, which is a lot of gigs on, um, uh, you know, weekends are our biggest time as entertainers and you're you know so you try and book three or four in a week so if you're taking four hours out of that for four four hundred bucks that's a lot of uh, for 200 bucks yeah that's a lot of hours that you could have been earning more even if you were doing four of those at 200 dollars each anyway uh sometimes you just got to take those sometimes they're the only gigs that you've got and um you that's what i mean that's a get lost gig that's definitely a get lost gig something that would usually be a thousand dollars cut down to $200 for the exposure. And uh, so that's what a residency is great for. How necessary is that exposure in this field? Um, Nowadays, honestly, not so much. I don't think, word of mouth is really great. Word of mouth is really important. Um, But you don't get word of mouth from somebody who's seen you perform. You get somebody like, and corporate events, um, which this is is deep, uh, but, Corporate events is funny because you're you're working for the employee. You're going to talk to a lot of employees. So they say, oh, there'll be 800 people here. You know, think about the exposure. But it's 800 of their employees. The person who's booking you is the person that's going to book you again next year. So it's important to do a good job for them. And they often, and I think you get a lot of return work from that company because they were like, oh, we had that, we had that performer here. He was really good or she was really good. They were really good from, um, for, we'll have them again next year. You know that's that that's a that's a given that's really important and i think that's that's exposure as well but i think again i've been doing this for i've been corporate performing for 10 years 
and I think I've maybe booked four gigs from exposure <laughs> another gig. Uh, <laughs> so I suppose it's some money better than no money sometimes. I have to do it. I mean, again, it's that or you go and work a job that you don't love. And I don't think that you do something like circus and magic or any sort of thing in the arts, especially in Australia, uh, that you do it because you love it, not just for the money. I've had the I've had the big money jobs. I used to be a salesman. I used to be a, a lighting designer. I've, I've had some much better paying jobs. Uh, you move into this kind of career because you love it and you want to do it. Um, and so sometimes the choice is, well, do I do the exposure gig or the get lost gig <laughs> or do I do the, um, or do I go and work an hour in a bar or, you know, for eight hours in a bar? Um, and there's nothing wrong with working eight hours in a bar. I don't, I'm not at all doing that. But if I wanted to do a job that I didn't like, there are other jobs I could do. So I, I, you do a lot of these sort of jobs because it's like, well, yeah, it's not very much money, but at least it's performing instead of doing something I don't love. Why performing? How did it all start? Okay, uh, I was a gymnast when I was a when I was a kid, uh, quite a high level. I competed. Um, at okay, a, well, let's take a little bit further back. Why gymnastics? It's not a common. Yeah, that's fair. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, initially, it was um, my mum read a study about. I wasn't a great student. Uh, and she read that it was a good sport because it worked on your hand-eye coordination and a lot of those sorts of things that created pathways in your brain to make you better at school, basically. Um, I don't know how well that worked out. <laughs> I can't say that it necessarily made me a better student, but um, but I took to it. I, I had a natural ability for it. So I... But the uh, other sports like rugby league and cricket and... Yeah, um, uh, there's probably a little bit... My dad's big on rugby. Oh, God, I better get this right or I'll be in a lot of trouble. Rugby league. He's very big on rugby league, uh, and by the sounds of it, you're not. <laughs> I'm not. I'm sorry. No, it's which is very difficult in Melbourne. It's very difficult being uh, not great on big, made on mainstream sports. Uh, but I, um, there was probably a little bit of rebellion against dad, uh, not wanting to play the same sport as him. I mean, all kids go through that at some stage. Uh, but I tried soccer. I tried tennis. I tried um, cricket. And I just uh, didn't take to them. And then gymnastics came around, and uh, it was just it was uh, you know it was just one of those meant to be sort of fate moments almost. It was just I, I loved it from the minute I got there to the minute I left, and I always wanted to go back. Do you uh, remember the first time you walked into a gymnasium? I have a very early. I, I started right at kinder gym, so oh, very wow. like uh, so I would have been six, or like about as young as you can be going in. So. Um, I have some vague memories of going in, but they're mostly flashes of, uh, so the first, I know where it was, it was the, you know, shout out to Canberra, uh, the Western Creek YMCA. Um, and they had a little kinder gym sort of program there. Uh, and I went to them and I remember, oh, I remember doing forward rolls on the soft wedge, that's all I can remember. <laughs> but um, yeah, I remember the coach being really happy and I remember them sort of saying, well, "Yeah, he can do kinder gym because he's got because he, you're here and you've signed up for it." But actually, he needs to go to a real gymnastics club pretty quickly. And so I moved from there to another gymnastics club almost the same time. Yeah, very quickly. Uh, so, what are the early memories from gymnastics? Mostly competitions, and I think that's honestly what took me out of gymnastics in the end. Um, I, I think what I found was I enjoyed doing the skills, but I, and this is probably why I don't have a 
huge affinity with other main uh, big sports is I'm not necessarily competitive when it comes to a lot of those things. I enjoy doing it for myself. And I enjoy... Um, Big mistake if you're a competitor. Yeah, yeah that's right. But uh, yeah, so there, I think that was mostly it. So competitions are my earliest memories of gymnastics and my, my biggest memory of gymnastics. Also one extremely mean coach I had, but that's, that's a different story. <laughs> but, could, um, could that have turned you off? Uh, not the coach. No, I, I, uh, I was lucky enough that I was good enough. And so if I didn't enjoy a coach, I could just request to not be with that coach. And because they wanted to keep me on the team... Um, I just didn't end up in his rotations anymore. <laughs> what apparatus did you start really taking to when you were mm. such a, a young gymnast? Uh, rings, floor and uh, vault were my things. So most of the tumbling ones, uh, things where you get to go upside down. So um, I did, I was uh, national number one at uh, 12 for those three apparatus. Uh, you don't do sort of community gymnastics in Australia without um, without doing all of them. But I didn't really take to it pommel or uh, I wasn't great at high bar. But um, but yeah, those, those three were my big ones. Um, and again, probably the other reasons that I've transferred into circus is they're the, most, the ones that most directly relate to circus as well. National number one must have been a lot of prestige. Your mum must have been incredibly proud. Yeah, they were. Although, again... Uh, and they were, and my parents are hugely supportive. I should always, I always make an effort to say that because I think that was another important thing about a getting into the arts, but also b um, just my entire childhood. My, both of my parents were extremely supportive about anything I wanted to do. But gymnastics, they got me into it because they wanted to make me better at school. And by the time you get to that sort of level, it becomes a distraction from school. Uh-huh. <laughs> so it sort of it sort of came back to bite them a little bit. Um, but uh, yeah, they were they were hugely proud and hugely successful, and they came to all my comps, and you know, which is a that's a hard thing for parents, I think, in gymnastics. Comps start at sort of six a.m. in the morning, and there's nothing going on until ten. It's just that the kids have got to get there to warm up um, and get ready. You've got to you're not allowed to take your uniform home, so you've got to go get changed into your uniform when you get there. All, all these sorts of things, which might be different now. It's been a long time since I've been around a, a competitive gymnasium, but. Um, Back then, it was, it was you know, it was, I, I remember my dad always saying he was glad I didn't take to cricket because they were the longest days he's ever had. But I think comp days for gymnastics was pretty big too. <laughs> yeah. How important was it to have the supportive parents? Would uh, you have stayed at it? God, no. No, no, no. I don't think, uh, I think that supportive parents is, that's the best thing you can do as a parent. I don't think you need money or anything like that. You just need to be supportive of the parents. And they were supportive getting in, during, and when I wanted to leave, when I wanted to leave gymnastics because I didn't enjoy the competing, they were like, not a problem. This is this is your thing. Not a lot of that sort of high pressure. No, 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 you're really good at this. You need to keep going because, you know, the Olympics is next. No, that's fine. It's too much pressure. I was still quite young. That was on my radar to ask you about. Did you actually, you know, your national num- number one at 12, mm-hmm. did you look towards? Definitely. Uh, and that's where um, that's where you start going. Uh, and I think that's that's the hard thing about gymnastics is you've got to make those big decisions quite early as a young. Uh, it's even harder for the girls. I think the girls are really making that decision at sort of 10 to um, start putting in that extra training hours. I was always already doing three times a week uh, and I was doing before and after school a lot of the time. Uh, and to get ready for Commonwealth then Olympics, you'd be 
doubling that and it's just it's it's full on uh, and it's a lot for a kid to go through but that's also when you're best at it there's no denying that either he it ages you very quickly <laughs> well i have heard that that it does really uh take a lot did you have any injuries at that mm, stage not at that stage i had a i, I again uh, even back then, gymnastics was probably at the forefront of um, prehab and rehab, which a lot of uh, rugby and uh, other mainstream sports have sort of taken on in the last sort of five or ten years, five to ten years. But back then, gymnastics was all about. I mean, I remember a lot of kids giving me grief because at the start of when I got into a higher level, I had to take ballet classes as part of gymnastics. And they're like, "What are you doing ballet for?" And but you, when you look back at it now. You know that was to enhance active flexibility to to maintain muscle tone to keep my joints safe and things for all of the other things i was doing it didn't actually matter if i was any good at ballet it was just that those exercises that were involved in that were really good at keeping you your uh body strong for gymnastics because a lot of the stigmatism for a young guy doing ballet oh yeah you know that's all there's a lot of stigmatism back especially back then for a young guy doing gymnastics and not take, not liking football <laughs> so it was it was uh, part and parcel but um and there's a lot of stigmatism about a, a guy who wants to go do the arts and not play football as well so i think that's just part of it um but i i come i always come back to if you love it it doesn't matter i think that's the most important thing and uh, i've always loved I've always loved. I loved gymnastics. I just didn't like competing. Why is that? What's the the psyche around mm. not liking the competition? Because to pit yourself against someone else, you know how good you are. But it's mm. like to rate yourself against someone else to push yourself that little bit further. Yeah, I. It's funny. I um, I've always been. My, my biggest competitor without again without sounding too much like a hallmark card my my biggest competitor has always been myself um i've always wanted to get something because i need to get it uh and because i want to i want that skill um i i think that i'm lucky uh in that i don't i don't compare myself um when it comes to skills when it comes to other things that there are other things in life i'm sure i do compare myself to even subconsciously but um it's always been about leveling myself up rather than leveling up because the other person is you know a, a step ahead of me um i want to get to that level obviously but it's never been about what they're doing it's always just been about oh well i want that because i want it um and when i stop wanting it then i, I, I often think that it's time for me to move on to something else what was the hardest part about this time the 10 years that you did as a gymnast um I, again the, the comps are hard and there's a lot of pressure um rightfully so because i think it's also a bit of a weeding weeding out you know they which <laughs> clearly they weeded me out eventually um but i think that you, it it's um definitely the, i mean there's no other way to say it the comps the comps are intense um you you know you can't talk um you've got to learn how to march it's very very and there's a lot of um minute scoring problems that happen so you know oh he you know he bent his finger on that last round off well that's that's a point four deduction and that that's it that's that's the comp gone for him there's a lot of that uh and so that just that intense mindset when you're sitting when you're getting ready to do whatever apparatus you're doing um and the hardest bit was again i always wanted to be better at those apparatus that i wasn't good at so 
floor rings and uh, vault they were fine I, you know i just knew i could do them and i was good and again part of that probably was a, a bit of a natural ability not necessarily even hard training but you would i would beat myself up about um not losing at a comp on vault because i knew i wasn't it's not on pommel say like i still to this day it's something that a lot of people ask me in circus you know gymnasts we get a bit of a head start when we jump into circus and a lot of people are like oh well you you can do these bits and you and i have uh these um skills that i've just never been able to get and one of them is circles on vault which is a common thing you know you should be able to get it pretty straight away but i would like i would beat myself up on the daily because i couldn't get my my pommel circles um and yeah i guess that was the hardest bit was beating yourself up over tricks you couldn't get how did it eventually help your school work or hinder it when you were that busy with it i think it ultimately hindered my schoolwork because you can't do that level of training and and live that kind of life without um without being tired when you're at school uh and it is also just not your focus you know academically you're like yes i you know i need to do this i need to do this because that's what the teacher says i've got to do but you're really thinking about um you know you're really thinking about what gym's going to be or what things you know you I, like you get to the stage where even at that age, you're calorie counting and doing and watching your diet and all these sorts of things. Wow, for a and young fellow, that's, that's difficult. Big. That's difficult on canteen food too. So, <laughs> yeah. must be even harder on the girls than as you oh, say. Oh God, yeah, the girls. I, I don't know how. I don't know how some of these females make it to the Olympics. That the intense pressure, and again, so much younger, so much younger. It's it's it's, a, it's an intense sport. There's no denying. You said your parents were very supportive. Did you find many? pushy parents did you see a lot of that mm-hmm. i call them dance mums because that's it's <laughs> a horrible cliche but it is it is a it is a thing um a lot of parents that are reliving their glory through their kids um or never got glory or never got the glory and are like oh they're good at this no 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 this is what you'll do and i again that's what i say to a lot of people uh you know i'm at the age now where a lot of my friends are having kids and a lot of my friends have had a have had kids long enough ago that they're potentially thinking about gymnastics and I do get this question quite a lot from them and they and I say that do it if they love it but let them quit if they need to quit you know if they really want to compete they'll come back to it and you know a year off at that age won't actually affect them too much but you were talking about getting weeded out so was it you getting weeded out or did you weed yourself out I definitely weeded myself out I made the conscious decision I just um I it was it was at that stage where it was like okay matt you know you're at this level you need to start thinking about um increasing your training and it was at the stage you know i I think by then i was uh, 13 14 you know there's a lot of other things happening for a young man at that time (laughs) yeah that's it girls um and you start wanting to have a social life and that you just can't do that you know you're training most weekends if you're not comping and you it just it's a lot it's a lot to do and so but i definitely remember making the conscious decision my coach came to me he said that he wanted me to start training more wanted to start sending me to ais and i said i, I, I don't really think that's for me I, like i'm not i've never got much joy out of the competitions anyway i went to the competitions because i thought i had to do the competitions to be able to stay going to gymnastics what was the reaction from the coach then or the coaches mm. when you went nah don't want to do it again supportive parents so i they had the conversation with my parents my parents sat down and had the conversation with me and then my parents 
took me in and I was there for the initial conversation. And then uh, they, I think they guarded me from a lot of any sort of disappointment or anything like that. The, um, the head of the club came and spoke to me and said that it had been great. But, um, but other than that, my, my direct coach, uh, it's funny, incidentally, through a very long pathway, my, um, my, my, my circus in Canberra ended up going back and training at that gymna- gymnastics club um, because their training centre burnt down in the Canberra bushfires. And, uh, and my coach remembered me. And I think, and I sort of, you know, shook his hand and we talked and, we, and you know, he was like, oh, you know, this is, this is interesting, circus is fun, you know, all these sorts of things. And then I sort of looked back on it and I was like, wow, I think that is the first time he spoke to me since that, you know, that conversation. I still trained at the club uh, once I, after I decided I wasn't going to compete anymore. But, I, but because I wasn't on his competition team, I didn't, you know, and it's funny, they're, your coach is a big influence on your life and they act, they, you know, you feel like they're your friend. And then I don't think he spoke to me for a good year after I, um, after I quit comp. And uh, then he wouldn't have spoken, you know, I, if I'd seen him on the street, he wouldn't have said anything to me. And then he was almost forced to talk to me because I came back to the club to... How did that make you feel? Um, I think, again, it was good timing for me as a, you know, you're a bit of an arrogant teenager, you just sort of don't, you know, you don't take those things in. Again, it took me coming back and re- registering it. And even then I was like, oh, I, I get it. You know, I, you know, this, he's, he's invested as much, if not more time in me than almost I have, you know, so I, I can see how it would be a disappointment. And I don't, I don't, I, that ultimately you've got to look at that as a, well, that just shows how good I was. And that <laughs> I should have, I, I, I'm proud of that more than I am upset at him for getting mad at me for wanting to leave. Interesting way of looking at it. Now, then you kept training. Kept training. I um, kept training and then, uh, again, I wasn't competing, so I wasn't getting as much time on apparatus or anything like that. And ultimately, because I didn't have to compete, I didn't have to keep doing the things I wasn't good at and the things I didn't enjoy. And I sort of started realising, well, I don't actually need to be at a gym anymore. I can do a lot of these sorts of things. And so I was having this conversation with a friend at school and I said, uh, you know, I... I go to gym, but I, I'm not. I just, I just want to keep doing the tumbling and things, but I don't need, I don't need to be going to the gym. You know, I'm not competing. And he said, "Oh, you should come to the circus." You know, my my mum runs a circus at this. Uh, it turned out to be at a church, which is a funny thing because I'm a pretty, even back then I was a pretty strong atheist. But <laughs> um, he he was like, "Yeah, you should come train with us. We do, we do we do circus every week here." And I just sort of moseyed on down one day, not even realizing even then that it was at a at a church and uh, and that's what that was it i i uh, was like oh well this is it this is this is this is gymnastics without competing it's great it's it's a lot of fun it helped that i again i had that head start as a gymnast so i, I sort of walked in and was best in class and that's always good for the ego <laughs> but, but um yeah it was really really easy and really straightforward and that was it i, I didn't go back to gym i didn't ever looked back at it either i uh, even as an adult you know you can do adult gymnastics everywhere and um, I just never, I never needed to go back to a gymnastics thing. Love circus, but did you want to teach kids? Uh, even then, I would only ever teach circus. Um, I would teach it. I, I have a, quite a gymnastics approach. I coach, have coached. Uh, again, some of those um, get lost gigs turn out to be coaching gigs. Um, so I have coached, and uh, but I ha- and I have a very gymnastics approach to how I coach when it comes to. Uh, 
tumbling and again I come back to that sort of it's really important to get fundamental skills that don't necessarily look like they relate but all of a sudden you realize you've got stronger ankles because you did uh, point work with ballet or um, good shoulders is extremely important uh, and so there's a lot of exercises that as a kid you go why the hell am I doing this and then all of a sudden you realize that I mean I've got even in the circus world I've got strong and flexible shoulders and I've had to have had a single reconstruction on one of my shoulders and I've still got bendier shoulders than everybody else so and that's all just gymnastics that did that so you're starting to move into circus and it's obviously floating your boat what are you thinking at this stage when you're going to the church Mm -hmm. and um (laughs) Did they know your philosophical beliefs, as it were? Uh, they didn't when they invited me down, uh, but I made it very clear right from the start. Uh, again, I'm not a. Uh, I've just never. Had, religion has never really gelled with me. Most religions, um, and without getting uh, too focused on any of that, um, I've never been somebody who's like, "This is the worst thing in the world. Get it away from me." It's always been, "Look." I'm not here to force not being religious on you, so please just don't force being religious on me. And as long as you don't get that with me, then we can we can live in the same space. That's totally fine. And that's basically what I said to them. I said, look, if it works for you, that's great, but it is not something that works for me. And I, there's, I just cannot imagine an argument that was ever going to convert me to that because of this, that, and the other. What was their reaction? Uh, I had... Uh, her last name Kate Kate my coach Kate I just know her as Mama Duck <laughs> <laughs> but um but she was absolutely amazing uh, she was super cool with all of that and she said this isn't about church this is just that the church supports the circus it's obviously full of people from the church because it's run by the church but we we are gonna so they did things like they prayed before the start of uh, and but they didn't expect me to involve be involved with any of that, and they were super cool with it to the point where we ultimately, obviously, with a community circus, you do performances, and a lot of those were at their church, and they would just they put me in the performances, but they'd let me sit out the back, and they didn't expect me to come in, and they they were very good about not they again, uh, I asked them not to, and they were very good about it, and uh, and yeah, that was it. I think that was that, again another person might it might have been a bit more of a problem, but Kate. I can't, uh, Kate Lang, thank God. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, Kate, <laughs> Kate Lang. That's funny. That was yeah, ironic. Uh, yeah, Kate was. Um, Kate was, uh, to use their wording, an angel about it, and she was so super great about it. And uh, if if my parents were the first person to be supportive about what I wanted to do in my life. Kate was the other biggest influence on making sure I stayed in circus. What sort of career path did you say, this is what I want to do? When did you just know? Uh, I think I knew very early on. Uh, and I remember I quote this conversation with about, with Kate a lot um, because she's, again, she was a huge influence. Um, I sort of said within the first year, I think, of switching to circus, well, this is it. This is what I want to do. I love it. I love everything about it. I get to be on stage. I was already doing drama at school and things like that, so I quite enjoyed being on stage. And I was like, well, so I get to be on stage and I get to do the tumbling and things. This is it. This is what I want to do. Um, and she said, 
said, great, but let's just uh, take a step back from that. If you are going to do this for a career, which is well within your bounds, everything you do right now is physical. So the other week when you rolled your ankle, you had nothing to do because you couldn't walk, you couldn't tumble. So all I could do is handstands. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's very good. She said, well, you need something else. You need something to do in the circus, but that isn't um, that. And I started juggling, hated that. And that's why I'm also a magician now, because she she said, you've got to have something that you could do if you if you if if your body isn't up to scratch to be able to lift someone or do a handstand. You're talking about you uh, hated juggling. What is it? Because you obviously have good hand-eye coordination mm. and it's come through the gymnastics. Why juggling? Why not juggling? Um, again, even in circus, circus is a very wide discipline uh, and I think you've just got things you cert- you kind of gel with. So I did juggling because I thought it was the thing that I could do that, again, that I could do if I hurt myself. Um, and I... I I used to say that it was the repetition of juggling. Juggling is um, there's a lot of repetition, but so is magic. So I don't think that it's necessarily that. I think it's just that ultimately I, I uh, gelled with magic and didn't look back at juggling. Um, there are people in that are jugglers that are just incredible, and it's because they love it, and you've got to love it to keep to get to that sort of level and that's I just didn't love juggling I like I liked it I was good at it I could do it I mean I could do it I can't I can do it compared to most people I can't necessarily do it compared to circus performers like there's a lot of people just about everybody's a better juggler than me in the circus (laughs) (laughs) but but, um but I can you know I can juggle five and four and I can um do all sorts of things better than most people on the street but get into the circus and I'm bottom tier let's talk about the magic side of things yeah how did it evolve? How did it develop? Yeah. Um, oh, that's a, this is a bit more of a convoluted path. So I, um, I, bought, I bought a set of magic. My first paid gig for circus was with the church. We, we came up here to Queensland. We did a gig on Hamilton Island. They hired out the whole island or something like that for one of their big sort of like Hillsong-style events. Uh, and they paid us a bit of money for it. And so I... Um, I spent that on a bunch of magic tricks from the US uh, and I practiced them, I practiced them, I practiced them and then I um, I went and showed my mum and as supportive she is, she's also an extremely harsh critic of magic and uh, I've, I said, hey mum, check this out. She said, no, I can see how you did that. That's and I put them in the drawer and I never looked at them again. And then uh, while I was, after I'd moved to Melbourne and I was sort of following circus, there's a little bit of a break in the middle there where I, I did a couple of corporate jobs because I didn't realize that I could make, I didn't actually realize I could make money doing circus. And so I um, I went and sold cars and I did uh, lighting design. Um, but I came back to circus very quickly. Anyway, um, I, I met a guy in a bar and uh, I told him I was a performer or coming back to being a performer in the circus. And he said, okay, great, you're... Um, you know what uh what do you do and he said he was a magician and he showed me three magic tricks and he said here you go with cards with cards definitely uh, and he said uh this is how they're done he said if you're serious about being a magician uh, come back why did he show you i thought a magician oh, i told him i wanted to learn i told him i okay. wanted to learn and i wanted i was a performer hmm. and you're what you're about to say is co- completely correct um 
the truth about magic is not to share the secret because obviously the secret is what makes it magic. But the other thing is it's a dying, it, if you don't share it, it's a dying art. If you keep the secrets completely to yourself, um, you know, the, there are tricks now in magic that existed uh, that no one knows the methods for. And they, pro they probably figured them out. But the magician was so secretive about the method that people can't do it anymore. That magician's passed away. And that adds to the mystique of that magic trick, but it also means that that trick will never be performed again. Uh, and that's not, that's not, it's a dying art. It, the, the, if that happens to all of magic, then no one's going to be able to do it. Or we'll, anyway, uh, so I sort of explained that I'd done a little bit, I'd tried to be a magician, and I told him that story about my mum, and that I was already a performer and I really wanted to learn. And he was like, okay, well, here's three basic tricks. And they were basic tricks. They're not the kind of tricks I would perform now, but they were very basic tricks. And I said, and he said, if you really want to learn, you'll learn those tricks and come back and show me you've learned them. And then he mentored me for three years because I did that. Wow, you've been in the right place at the right time. Lucky, hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, he, and he, he was Magic Dave, David Walsh. He's a, a, an Irishman and he lives back over in Ireland now, but he's a... He's a total dude, and he, he really helped me, really helped me become a magician. Talk about the magic with, are you just cards? No, no, no. I mean, uh, the show we're doing now, I'm a uh, large-scale illusion. Uh, I've gotten into building my own props and uh, doing all those sorts of things as well. Uh, and I do a lot of, um, I do across a, a lot of range, uh, mostly sleight of hand when it comes to close-up. I also do a little bit of mind-reading mentalism stuff, but that's not... Um, it's not like I can just guess your credit card number by looking at you <laughs> or anything like that. But um, but I, I do a little bit of I do a lot of things for close up, and then on stage I do mentalism and grand illusion. You're talking about mentalism and and that. How does that work? Yeah, can't tell you. Ah, can't tell you. Have to tell you. No, yeah. but if someone wants to know about it, uh, yeah. I mean, it's all branches of magic. Uh, mentalism is um, mentalism. There's a few movies out there that describe magic very accurately however whatever you think about the um the I mean, <laughs> the uh movie in itself so which now, movie is that now you see me is the now you see me the first one there's a mentalist in that and he describes mentalism as controlled coincidence uh, and i think that's the best the best way to describe mentalism so it's you use a bit of sleight of hand you use a bit of uh, just talking to people in a way to create something that looks like I've read it out of out of midair, but it's not. The classic example is if I asked you to think of a number between one and ten. Now it's not three, which means it's seven, and it's all that is is that I know that most people will pick either three or seven, and if you don't hit on three, then I go to seven. That's. <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. not going to tell you the number. <laughs> sure. I actually picked six. Did you? There you go. Because um, we were talking about magic. Is that what it was? Yeah. There's another one that if I asked you to name any letter in in the in the alphabet and really try and fool me, don't don't pick something. And it's usually, again, without going through a, it would usually be a lot more talking than this. Uh, but uh, it's usually uh, Y or Z. Oh no, X or, or X. Z. Yeah. X or Z. X or Z. Uh, and that's because they're the least common letters in people's brains, and so they really try to trick you straight away. Uh, 
but the second you start talking about magic to somebody, they go the opposite way. So they'll go down to an A or a or a vowel usually, and then you can't you can't get it. It's the same as the same as the trick about ten because we were sitting there talking about magic. I've whether you did or not, a lot of people will go to seven or three and they'll jump from that to another one because they went, oh, I'm not going to go the first number because I reckon that's what they're doing. It's interesting. The first number I thought of was six. There you go. Yeah, that's good. Um, for whatever reason, yeah. I don't. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. Again, I th- when with mentalism, you've there's a lot about building a rapport. There's also a lot of pressure on you. You don't like the pressure of competition, but there's yeah. a lot of pressure when you're having to perform. Yeah, yeah, but that's that's all about me. It's not about it's not about competing against somebody else. I have no problem with pressure. It's just it's just that I don't care what the guy next to me is doing. Yeah, it's uh, it's all about it's all about me. And magic ultimately is that it's it's the highest, without sounding too arrogant, it's the highest pressure version of performing, especially in the circus. I say this a lot to my friends um, because we also cop a lot of grief magicians because they're they're like oh the prop does all the work and all these sorts of things which is not necessarily true. That'd but be more illusion though. Illusion that a lot of the prop does it well. Even then, there's there's certain illusions that you do that aren't um, based on just the prop. But yes, you can you can if you've got a, enough money without being a, an actually trained magician, you could just go out and buy three or four illusions and become an illusionist very quickly as long as you can talk to people and the props would do most of the work without you having to practice anything hard that's not the kind of magic i like doing but that is that is definitely possible uh anyway and that's why we cop a lot of grief in circus but what i say about magic is if you're in the circus and you're a juggler and i juggle and i juggle and i juggle and then i'm getting ready for my last trick and i throw it up in the air and it falls on the floor all i do is pick the ball up have another crack at it, and that's it. Every, everybody still claps. If you're a magician and I'm moving around, moving around, moving around, wave the cloth, and as as it falls down, you see my assistant closing the trapdoor. I don't get another crack at that. <laughs> I don't get another, and it's not necessarily her fault. It's probably my fault because I've dropped the curtain too early. It doesn't matter what it is. I'm only saying that because she's in the room. But uh, but you know it's um it's I don't you don't get another crack at magic. You got to get it right on the first time. And if you don't, nine out of ten times the secret's exposed. You've either got to move on to another path, or you or try to make it look. It's hard on stage, but you know if you're close up and I get the card wrong, uh, I can often go back through the deck and be like, no, you, see, it's not your card; it's this card, and then let me do another something else. And that's ultimately what I was going for. But if you go, if you get it wrong, you mess it up. Then you can't. You don't get another try. It's no second, no second chance at magic. If you mess the secret up, everybody in that audience has seen the secret, and they can't see the magic anymore. Do they want to see the magic, or do they want to know the secret? Fifty-fifty. There, there are two types of people in the audience: people who really want to see the secret, and people who never want to know. Actually, there's three, but the other ones are so little that it's not uh, it's not worth mentioning. But there are some people still who think that it's real magic, and you know, <laughs> they come to you after the show and ask you to heal their grandmother's cancer or something, which is scary. They're the most scary kind of people, not because they're ultimately a little bit delusional, but because. You know, I like a, the, magic is a funny thing. You, they want to believe so hard. Yeah, yeah, and you don't want to let those pe- kind of people down. But you also can't. You, I don't. Um, 
especially in mentalism, mind reading, you there's the dark side of mind reading and mentalism, which is um, evangelists, uh, TV evangelists especially. Um, and nine out of, nine of them, most of them have been caught out, but, you know, like they're often using mentalism techniques to fake something supernatural. And I, I as, as a magician, my, my philosophy as a magician has always been, yes, this seems magical, but it is based on something that anybody could learn is what I say at the start of any of my shows is yes this is this seems like a miracle but it is not a miracle it is achievable by anyone the magic is not that I have a deal with the devil or something like that it is that I have spent more time on this than anything else and if you put magic into that category so many things become magic you know, Teller uh, from the famous duo Penn and Teller he, he has a famous saying and that is that it's basically what I just said, but magic is just somebody spending more time on something than anybody else conceives uh, possible. So I have spent more time turning over cards than a lot of other people in the world, which is why I can make three cards look like one or whatever. Um, but equally so, somebody has gone out and spent decades carving a statue with a hand chisel. That's magic because they've spent more time on it than I would ever conceive is possible to do it. Uh, that's the magic. It's not supernatural things. It's just that it's another art form. You know, it's another piece of art. Who do you look up to in the magic field? Teller, obviously. Uh, he's basically the greatest magician uh, that lives modern day. Um, performance style, I think Darren Brown from the UK, he's a TV magic uh, mentalist, uh, but he is just incredible. And he's really good at dancing that line that I was just talking about, about maintaining skepticism while still presenting things that seem supernatural. Uh, even in his stage work, not just on TV, uh, he is extremely, extremely good at being like, yeah, look, this is, this is a miracle, but it's not supernatural. It is definitely like, do not consider me to be, you know, a one in a million. Is hey. that important to uh, keep that... It's not supernatural? I think it all comes down to personal ethics. Um, it's very important for me. I don't want to mislead. I, I think that some of the filthiest sort of things people can do is, um, is make somebody believe that I'm talking to their dead grandmother that they really need that closure from. I know that there's a, there's a flip side to this argument, which where people will say, well, but maybe they just need that closure. But... Ultimately, if you're lying to something about to someone about something they care about so much, so some of these psychics, oh, yeah, so they can't really do it. Look, maybe there is somebody out there who really can do it, but I certainly haven't seen anybody ever that has gone out and done any of those sorts of tricks. Where I've sat there, the second you become educated in this sort of thing, you sit there and you go, "Ah, oh, man, that's that's cold reading, or that's NLP." Oh, okay, so or some of the worst ones you know before before they were much more commonplace oh, he's just using an earpiece and he's got somebody talking to him there's a fantastic simpsons episode where they've got one of those guys <laughs> one of those guys and on the and under they're all sitting in a grandstand and he's got a group of people just rifling through people's bags as they're sitting in the grandstand and so they're reading information from people and then he's going oh i'm getting something i'm uh i'm Sen sensing a John Smith in the audience and you live at blah 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 and it's just because he's 
this was somebody underneath. Anyway, um, there's a lot of that and there's a lot of cold reading, which is just open-ended statements that people take what they want from. And I just think that, especially when it comes to evangelism and sort of misleading people, it becomes dangerous. People start turning to those people for, like start ignoring, uh, you know, actual medicine for being healed by a, um, a faith healer or things like that. And also then the flip side of it is I, I just, I can't bring myself to lie to somebody that I'm talking to them about, this is, to somebody they need to talk to. It's a lot of power. It is. It's too much power. And if you, that's, I think that's the big thing. Um, and people go crazy with it. Some of the, a lot of those TV evangelists are scary, scary people. It's just not, it's, in my eyes, it's not okay. Ultimately. There's a guy that was quite famous at one stage, a fellow called John Edward. Mm, yeah. Or John Edwards. Yeah, John Edwards. Yeah. When you, watch john edwards yeah what do you think um so john edwards is extremely rich he's made a lot of money doing that and ultimately i think that he's i he's he's lying to people i'm certain that I, he's not a psychic there's no there's no denying that i think that that's been proven there's some very famous skeptics out there um uh, john randy just died but he's he uh Rather than talking about John Edwards, because uh, however however um, big your podcast gets, I don't want to be the guy that <laughs> that went after John Edwards. But ultimately, I don't think that he's doing it for real. I think honestly, he's um, I think he's using open ended statements, cold reading, and I think also once he got onto TV and he's using audiences, I'd be interested to see what the process is of getting into his audience. So uh, we do a thing in. Maybe I shouldn't say this. Anyway, we do a thing in magic called pre-showing, which is um, it's very common to uh, go to uh, some of these evangelist shows and have to fill out a full information card. Oh, really? Of things you're trying to do. You hand those in as part of the sort of, you know, like almost like signing away your terms and conditions. You're going to be on TV, so just fill out all of these things. And then all of a sudden in the questionnaire, it's who's somebody you really want to talk to? You know, if he, if he, John Edwards picked you, who would you really want to communicate with? Then all of a sudden, you're in the audience, and he's waving his hands over the audience, and he goes, "Oh, now uh, there's somebody who's looking for somebody who starts with a J," and he's just looking for enough people to sit down until it looks like he's honed in on one person, but they've almost honed in on themselves, and then he's got somebody reading their card, and he, like, and if he doesn't have that prove that he doesn't I guess is the other thing of it because uh, going back to somebody like John Randy who's a famous skeptic he's the guy who debunked Yuri Geller uh, bend to the spoon yeah 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 start your watch <laughs> through the TV um, yeah so John Randy runs uh, the John Randy Society very famously runs a competition and it is an open-ended competition and it's still not being claimed but if you can go to the John Randy Society and prove that you have these abilities uh, under their controlled circumstances, not under any other circumstances, and you can do it in any way you like, uh, you know, I'm a psychic, I talk to the dead, or I'm a mentalist, I bend spoons, all of these sorts of things. If you, but you have to go there and you have to do it under their conditions, not I brought my spoon, this is the spoon I can bend. No, 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 we get to give you the spoon. That's a classic example. He'll give you a million bucks. And the million dollars is sitting in an account and it is there, proven to be there, ready to go for somebody who can claim this prize. And this prize has been out since he debunked Yuri Geller, so since the 80s. It has still not been claimed. So if somebody can really do it, 
that's a pretty easy million dollars. And I think that, you know, whether you're about the money or not, and if you were in it and you had these abilities and you were using them for good and you really were helping them, then that million dollars could be used to help people. But it hasn't been claimed by a good person or a bad person for over 20 years. Why do these people uh, come about? Is it just greed? Mm, yeah, greed. And they see that they can do it. I'm sure some, a lot of them, and maybe John Edwards is one of these people, I'm sure a lot of them initially convinced themselves that they were helping people. I think there's a lot of that too. Um, it's, you know, it's another form of therapy. I'm, I'm just giving them closure on this thing that they needed to say to that person, uh, which, fine, but what if, like, I, I just, I can't go past the fact that you're lying to somebody so deeply about something that matters so much to them, and real therapy would probably have worked a lot better for them. So you've never, by the sounds of it, been tempted? No, 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 no. And I think that it's a big... It's a big part of being being a stage magician. Uh, I, I think ethics is, comes into it a lot. I, I would I've never been tempted to fool people. I, I, sorry, I love fooling people. <laughs> I fool people on the daily. I uh, have never been tempted to go to that kind of level, no matter what the money was. Um, I just it just ethics is really important to me, and caring about people around you is very important to me. And I can't see. Again, I didn't do I didn't do magic because of money. I did magic because I love doing it, and I think that that sucks a lot of the love out of it. And that's you know, it's, it's five steps away from that, and you're burning people at the stake again. <laughs> <laughs> How much practice do you need to do even today? Um, oh, not as much. I definitely don't do as much as I should these days. Um, but initially, for magic, uh, I mean, I. My friends have. I have this habit that my friends call fidget magic. So I'm actually always practicing. Like I, it, it's just that I don't have anything in my hands right now. Otherwise, I'd be trying to make it disappear and appear in different places and all those sorts of things. So ultimately, there's a certain level of if you love it enough, you're always practicing. It's the same thing happens with jugglers. Uh, you know a juggler who really loves it because even when they're sitting there, they're just juggling what's in their hands. Um, so at least three or four hours a day, dedicated practice. To get to a point that is performable enough and that took about that was about five years worth of dedicated practice in magic before i was happy to put something in front of somebody that i felt was a performance you must have great focus because as a gymnast as an mm. athlete it takes extraordinary focus to just excel in any sport or any endeavor and then you've gone to magic and you've excelled there yeah I have great focus as long as I love doing what I'm doing. I'm horrible at focusing on something that I, including uh, my social media, which is really important for being a performer or doing a lot of those sorts of things. I'm, I'm, if I can't find a love for it, I, I can't I can't focus on it. But if I love it, yeah, I'll, I'll I'll sit down and I'll watch and watch the most boring magic lecture because it's got a method in it that I'm really interested in doing. So these days, what's your favourite gymnastics or performing uh, physically or as a magician? I um, It depends where I'm performing. So on stage, I much prefer acrobatics. Uh, I do a discipline called teeterboard, which is a big se seesaw that you sort of jump on either end. And that is still my favourite thing to perform ever. Uh, it's hard to perform in a lot of places and it's, um, you know, it requires a lot of height and it requires a lot of... Um, a lot of extra room and things like that so it doesn't get to be put on in a lot of places but that's my favorite thing to perform uh that and acrobatic uh 
uh, lifts. So I, I lift my partner and I lift other people. So yeah, acrobatic on stage mostly. A lot of trust on you when you're holding someone in the air and yeah. do you ever worry? All the time. And I um, uh, I tore my shoulder when I was at circus school um, quite badly. Hence the reconstruction. Hence the reconstruction. And uh, But the reconstruction was even right at the end when they realized how bad it was. It was ultimately pitched to me as optional. It was, look, it's torn, it's bad, um, but you'll be able to do everything you can do for a long time. But one day it might just give out and you'll drop someone or you'll drop yourself. And I got the reconstruction because I didn't want to ever drop somebody else. I can, I can, don't mind if I fall on my face in a handstand one time, that's fine, you know, then, but, but if it, if it was a risk and the, the, the surgery meant that it would, it came back at, at 98%, like it really is phenomenal. And, um, and that, that was, that was mostly about being, being sure that I wouldn't drop somebody when it was ever, you know, I didn't want to hurt somebody. So is that the worst injury that you've had? Uh, no, the worst injury I've had is my ankle. I, uh, again, on the teeter board, I, uh, <laughs> I shattered my ankle, basically. Um, well, I didn't shatter it. I tore the ligaments. Every ligament that you've got in your ankle, I tore all of them um, so badly that they tore the bone away from the, from the joint. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> so so uh, four places, I think it broke uh, in one trick. And that was that's definitely the worst, and I, that's the one that I've got the most trauma about as well. So I, I up until then could watch injury videos and things like that of people hurting themselves, and now I cannot. I can't. I, I get. I, I can't look or talk to somebody about certain things, and I just get PTSD. flashbacks. Of, yeah, I get flashbacks of my ankle coming out of the uh, out of the crash mat the wrong ankle, the wrong way, and going, and just. I didn't faint, but I damn, I couldn't stand up. I fell over and you know, I was screaming, and it was horrible. What was the initial reaction uh, when I did it? Yeah, um, I landed, and it didn't feel something didn't feel right. Were you practicing or performing? I was practicing. <laughs> it's a very frustrating story. So uh, my shoulder put me out of performing for about a year, uh, and it was my first big gig, a rehearsal for my first big gig back after my shoulder and I broke my ankle. Um, <laughs> yeah, it was pretty upsetting. Everyone was upset about it. It was a gig that I was doing with three of my best friends and we were all really excited that we had gotten this gig and it was on teeterboard and we were all excited that we'd finally gotten a teeterboard gig and we were doing it and it was going to be great. It was for GABS, the Great, Austra uh, great Australian Beer and Stout Festival, which goes all around Australia. It was great. It was going to be an awesome gig. And we done everything right because we were all paranoid about making sure we made it to this probably everyone was even more paranoid about making sure i made it to this which is even more devastating but uh and we would rehearse this trick and we practiced it and we practiced it at low height we practiced it at high height we practiced it with a person without the person and it's a um it's a I, I probably shouldn't say the name of the trick but it's it's a it's a back salt off the teeter board and just as you're landing somebody walks underneath you and you spread your legs just in time for them to fall over flat so you land straddling over the top of them and they're lying down between your legs um it's a it's a freak it's a and it's a, an act an act a, a trick that is supposed to scare the audience but it's all very well rehearsed and very well timed um anyway i uh, i landed and i split my legs and she was fine but i had uh, i pushed my ankle down into the crash mat and it was from full height so 
I'd had two people push from the end. So it was probably about four or five meters up in the air that I'd landed on my ankle just dead flat. And I pulled, so I landed, I was like, something didn't feel right then. I looked down and I lifted my foot up and my foot up came, came out still at a right angle. And I screamed, I fell on the mat. I pushed it back into place and then my friends took me to hospital. It was pretty intense. How was the rehab process after that? Horrible. Um, it was, uh, I decided not to go surgery again, uh, which was probably a mistake in hindsight. Um, and it still hurts when I do certain things these days. I've strengthened it enough that I can do teeterboard again and as long as I wear a brace and things like that. But um, it ultimately just never came back to full, to full capacity. How many circus performers are dealing with injuries? Uh, 110% of them. (laughs) (laughs) Pretty much all of them have had one injury or another. Uh, Not necessarily all as major as uh, that, but also a lot of them have had much more major. There's a poor gentleman in um, Adelaide named Lucky, and he fell on a cruise ship, broke his back, and um, he's in a wheelchair to this day. It's been about 15 years. Um, I know another person who, a tight wire performer, the line snapped, broke, uh, he was standing behind it when the line snapped and it's a steel cable under tension. It just, um, basically broke both of his legs in half. Uh, so there's some intense injuries, but also just niggles. Like, um, I, I alluded to it before, but our lifespan professionally is shorter than a lot of other performing arts, uh, which is another reason to take on magic because ultimately I'll be able to do that until I'm much older. But um, acrobatic-wise, you're pushing your body to the limits intentionally, and it doesn't matter how much prehab or rehab, everything you do, maintenance that you do body-wise the whole whole way through, ultimately your shoulder joints aren't designed to be doing handstands on one arm on so there's going to be wear and tear and that does come across how long do you expect to be performing for as Um, in as in a a gymnast in that sphere acrobatic performer i've probably got another six years at best i mean i'll be able to lift for a lot longer than that but dynamic performance like teeterboard um and tumbling uh, yeah you know i'm already at the i'm already limiting down skills that i do in those areas I'm 35, so... It's uh, stuff like you're essentially a professional athlete. Yeah, I'm less a professional athlete these days. You get a little lazier once you start performing. Uh, once you've got a stage routine, you get very good at maintaining those skills, not so much at, um, at, uh, at maintaining the skills that you don't necessarily have to do on a daily. But yeah, you are. You're, you're, that's what they teach you at circus school. That's the first thing they teach you as you go in in first year. They're like, you are professional athletes. You need to act like professional athletes to get the longest out of it. And gymnastics and my time at circus school are the two reasons that I'm still going now. Uh, and I'm heavier than I was and I'm not as toned as I was back then, but my joints and my core is a lot stronger than a lot of other people. And I can still... Um, without training, do the splits and lift things and do all those sorts of things. It's a sort of a fundamental level of, uh, of joint stability and flexibility that you get from gymnastics in that time at circus school that mean that you can go a lot longer. There are other, there are other acrobats that are self-taught or that don't do a lot of that 
they'd be giving up at about my age. Do you constantly train these days or is it just the performance that you are doing is enough to maintain? At the moment, we're, we're mostly focusing on performance. That We're in a trad circus right now and that's the hours on that are, are crazy. Um, and there's a lot of other work that goes around, on around um, being on stage in a trad show. Corporate-wise or um, the other versions of shows that I've done, you are only expected to do your act and then you go home or you go do things. That's where you you do a lot more training around the outside. Uh, for this current circus, I'm doing the marketing as well as I'm part of the tent crew, as well as I'm the usher, as well as I'm the magician, as well as I'm... So there's a lot of other work that goes on around it. That does start to eat into time that you should be spending training. Um, so we're much more about just maintaining the skills we've got that need to be on stage at the moment. And then on our break periods, we try and be better about our training. At the moment, you're with Circus Rio. Yeah. Whereabouts do you uh, have you been and where are you going? Uh, I don't actually know where we're going. Our boss is, is the trad circus world is very funny about uh, these sorts of things, especially at the moment while you're either stuck in Queensland or you're stuck in lockdown. Um, so I don't. Our boss doesn't really tell us right up until this, till at least until contracts are signed at new places, uh, just because other circuses can and have jump ahead of you and uh, try and book, try and get the town in front of you and it's a bit it's a bit dog eat dog um is it because of covid is it become worse because of covid we're definitely more condensed because of covid there's a lot more circuses that are that i mean you'd be a nutcase to try and to put on a show anywhere in new south wales at the moment and that's the next next place to go i guess you could jump over to nt but uh, anyway so um so yeah so we yeah we're a lot more condensed we're a lot more on top of each other uh, equally so, not many people want to be too far away from Brizzy Gold Coast when it comes to school holidays and things like that. We're currently in Gympie, obviously, and that's that's about as far as we'll go away from um, Brisbane Gold Coast when it comes to school holidays times. Uh, and at the moment, Rio is only doing school holidays, so we're 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 sort of threading in between a lot of the guys that are some some of them are going further up and further out, but yeah it's just we're, COVID has kind of put us all on top of each other could it thin out some of the circuses could some die off because of has, already has and already have um the very we've got a performer in our show that does the post sort of thanks for coming everybody um and he says that COVID again without trying to get too preachy about it but live performance in Australia is not very well supported across the board uh, unless you're in the opera or the ballet and then there's some very very rich patrons of the arts that keep a lot of grants going out there but uh circus not just circus but even just you know stage that isn't um privately funded there's not much support out there we were the last people to get government support and all of those sorts of things so the, the initial the initial year of covid it killed a lot of circuses there's no denying um and We'll see if some of them come back. A lot of them are old family circuses, and so they've had tents and properties. They're sort of second or third generation tent owners. They've got the ability to um, sort of just put it in storage and close the circus, but they've not lost their assets. Um, so maybe they'll be able to come back. But at the moment, uh, there would have been about 15 touring around Australia pre-COVID, I would have said. I think we're down to about six. Wow. Mm. It's it's just tough for a performer, even in the the music. Yeah, you know, like musicians are another one. They were talking about when the borders do open, 
Mm. People that have been touring, all of a sudden everyone wants to tour at the same time after they might have toured every four to six months. Mm. They might not now have performed for a year. Yeah. So everyone's going to be on the road at the same time. Yeah, that's it. And there's more, more than that. COVID brought everybody home. So this is true in circus as well, but it's true across most performing arts. And that is that there are other people who were overseas enough to be getting work over there that they weren't really considered to be performing in Australia anymore. Um, but they've all had to come home. They're stuck in Australia now. So the the pool of performers has gotten bigger. Wow. And the range of gigs has gotten narrower. So it's hard. It's hard. Another thing that I dabble in is putting on my own shows, uh, sort of large-scale shows, and we do a show with a full-size jazz band down in Melbourne, a cabaret, um, which is great. But uh, I've I've tried to put that on three times since we've been up in here in Queensland, and it just gets constantly cancelled, or or another another company takes the gig ahead of us because of that. It's an international company that everyone's really excited about being able to put on, which is great. It's great that some of these are back home performing where they want to be performing, but you know, equally so, it makes it tough across the board for everybody. It makes the gigs harder to get, and it makes them, yeah. As you say, performance arts often are the first to suffer. Yeah. But are people hungry now for entertainment? Yeah, definitely, definitely. But there's, um, you know, <laughs> uh, they're definitely hungry, and people love going to shows, um, and more so now. I think I think that a lot of people are like, oh, there's finally something we can go and see. But um, in Queensland, there's a little less of it. But, you know, like most venues, even if they are back, they're only back at 50%. So that pushes a lot of small-scale producers out. They can't afford to run a gig at 50% because it's not going to cover the costs, let alone make them enough money to be able to put on the show after that. Um, and when you've spent a year and a half out of work, you know, your savings is down to probably below zero so um there's a lot of that as well there's a lot of you know well i can't afford to run a show at 50 percent. so yes venues are open and it's really great that everybody gets to go and think but if i i either have to sell my tickets at 300 dollars each or i have to or i have to just wait until i can put more people in the venue you must thank kate constantly uh yeah big time yeah yeah She's, you know the fact that she gave you a second string yeah oh yeah 100 percent. yeah 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 i i um I give that advice and credit her for it every time because she is, yeah, she was, she, yeah, I, I wouldn't have made it as long as I have without without her. So do you see yourself more as an acrobat or more as a musician these days? Uh, probably more a magician nowadays. Uh, I definitely perform magic more than I perform acrobatics. Again, part of that is down that it comes to ease of it's a lot easier to get a roving magician in than it is to get a roving acrobat in. Roving acrobat, you've got to, <laughs> you've got to have a moving sort of five-metre square so that people don't fall on patrons, whereas magic, I can sit at a table and just talk to people and do a couple of tricks. So it's a lot easier to get a magician in. Um, it's also, when it comes to up-close stuff, much, much better to... Um, it's a much better version of performing, I think. I think that this is... If you were sitting with somebody... There's a barrier. If I'm juggling clubs or I've got, I've, I'm holding somebody up, that distance that they have to keep for safety means that there's a barrier when it comes to the personability of the performance. 
Whereas if I'm performing magic, I can be, I can sit there, I can have a chat with you, and then, oh, incidentally, this is your card and all those sorts of things. And here's your watch. Yeah, <laughs> I can never give the watch back. <laughs> yeah, um, that's how you make your money. <laughs> so, where do you see see yourself? Okay, um, in the next five years with performance and what you're doing, what are you hoping to achieve? Biggest thing is, um, I mean, post COVID is. Uh, performing as much as we can to keep putting money back into our savings um and then ultimately the dream gig would be owning my own venue or something like that but um that's another thing that's getting harder and harder these days and you don't see many house loans going out to acrobats but um but yeah anyway you'd see, so um, like when i'm done performing uh and again the lifespan on performing i want to just do it until i can't anymore um, and I'll keep doing magic, but acrobatic wise, definitely performing until I burn out. Um, and then from there, uh, going into more producing or more, um, again, it'd be great to own a little bar that you could put on shows at. You were talking earlier about drama mm-hmm. and you were in a, you were studying drama back at school. Yep. What happened to that? Uh, I guess I, I mean, it definitely taught me to be comfortable on stage. Um, I was always very last minute at learning my lines. So that changed my, um, changed a lot of parts that I got. And I think that's probably why I didn't necessarily, I assume what you mean is why didn't I go into doing something like TV instead of doing stage work or yeah. acrobatics? Um, it definitely crossed you. I think it crosses everybody's mind. Well, maybe, I mean, I could be on Neighbours. <laughs> um, but Ultimately, I think it was just, uh, again, comes back to that. What I loved was the acrobatics and the magic. Because you did some extras work, I believe? Slight, slight, a little bit, not very much at all. What did you do in that? What happened? Uh, again, I think I, part of that might have been just who I signed up for. I signed up with two companies down in Melbourne, and it was, um, you know, I think it was mostly about getting the money out of me for for the photo shoot to do your promo photos oh no 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 the photos you've got already are not good enough we've got to get them again and then um so it was an extras work i think i did a background on neighbors for 30 dollars or something and i did <laughs> i did i um i did a, i've applied for a lot of commercials but i as a as a performer but i only ever got one as a non-performer again just person in crowd number 64 or something like that and um I just didn't really love it. I, probably, I might have loved it more if I was doing a much more sort of performative role. But what I was really doing was just rhubarb, rhubarb in the background. Looking back, what's the major thing that you've learned over your career that you think, if I hadn't done that? Oh, that's hard. Um, persistence. Uh, you get kicked in the teeth a lot in this in the, any industry like this where you rely on yourself a lot um do they take advantage like in the media they take advantage i think of that young wannabe a star yeah take advantage i mean the exposure the exposure conversation we had right at the start that's definitely a lot of that a lot of that comes from people who are trying to take advantage of the fact that you know they can see you've got skills but they don't want to pay you what you're necessarily worth um yeah but but also don't get caught up in not taking those gigs. I think a lot of people um, look at those kind of gigs and then they look at somebody who's three or four years ahead of them 
and they go, well, they're not taking that gig. Why am I taking that gig? But the answer is because they've already done enough of those gigs. You've performed wherever you can. You know, I didn't perform enough. when I got very nervous and very self-critical. That's probably one of my biggest roadblocks that I've had. Uh, and being less self-critical was a, was, was a big step into getting on stage properly and full-time. Uh, and that's what I would tell myself if I was to go back, I guess, is get out of your head it's actually good enough it was good enough a week ago stop like a lot of the time you would say i'm not going to perform that trick this week because it's not ready and then you don't ever perform it because it's never ready if that makes sense did you ever sort of dream back in those days of running away and joining the circus you've essentially made a career out of it now but did you ever think about it when you were a gymnast yeah uh, no, I was a gymnast until I wasn't a gymnast. And then when I wasn't a gymnast, I was going to be a circus performer. There was a sort of four or five years in the middle there where as I was leaving year 12, I had a few things line up that I, I was able to manage a theatrical production theatre and then I moved into car sales, as I've already said. And, um, and that was mostly because people um, told me that it was impossible to make a real living out of what I wanted to do. Uh, but then the second I realised that they were wrong, I was back to being a circus performer and that's what I've always wanted to be once I became it. I didn't want to be a circus performer when I was young. I loved going to the circus though. I loved, um, I remember going to Circus Oz in Canberra uh, and one of my favourite things to do when, when they toured all the time was to go to Cirque du Soleil like three or four times when they were in town. Which is your favourite? Uh, which Cirque du Soleil show? Well, no, Circus, with it, you get Oof. to watch. Oofed. Uh, that's a big... Uh, so Australian-wise, I'm a big fan of uh, Gravity and Other Myths, uh, probably, more than I am of Circa and Circus Oz, which are the other two big ones, or Company 2, which I don't think are actually around anymore, but the people who made Company 2 are still making work, and they were really great. Overseas, uh, oof, Seven Fingers, um, and the guys who did Tabernacle, Alphonse, there you go, Cirque Alphonse. Did you ever dream of going overseas? Yeah, 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 yeah. I still kind of do, but I think if it's um, I think we're done. I'm done with that. Haley might still make it, but I'm done with that. Um, Montreal. I've uh, the I've been a circus performer the second I stopped being a gymnast, and I've been a Melbourneite the second I arrived in Melbourne. Um, I I'm, I grew up in Canberra, uh, but I moved to Melbourne and to to follow circus, and I've never looked back. Never wanted to go back, and I've always like. The second I arrived there, I was like, no, this is my town. Canberra was wrong. It doesn't matter where I grew up. I'm from Melbourne. Um, except when we went to Montreal. We went to Montreal for the Circus Festival um, a few years ago. And it was Montreal is the only other place I've ever been to and gone, oh, no, I could live here. This I could be from here. I could. This is it. And it, part of that is the circus culture there. It's, ama- it's amazing. Cirque du Soleil is good. Uh, they're not my favourite circus, but it's good. And what they've done is created this amazing circus culture in Montreal that is just incredible. Do you ever watch something like that and go, yeah, I could do that better? Um, <laughs> I could never afford to do anything better than Cirque du Soleil. Cirque du Soleil is so much money that it's almost unfathomable how they do it every time, uh, which is probably why they're often going bankrupt. But... Um, but I magic wise I watch a lot of it's it's hard for me to watch magic and not get hypercritical these days <laughs> um 
obviously the second you start exposing yourself to secrets you look for secrets you don't look further you don't look necessarily for the magic it's a rare but a delightful experience if somebody can fool me with a magic trick these days um but acrobatic wise uh, i don't i don't again i don't i don't get too caught up in what the other guy is doing um artistic wise I have a lot of problems with a lot of shows. I don't. I don't like a lot of direction that some a lot of people take in their shows. I think a lot of people spend too much time focusing on the tricks or too much time focusing on a story. And I think that, like a lot of things in life, the middle area is where you want to spend most of your time. Bits of both, all arguments, bits of both sides. Um, but there are a lot of shows out there that are just like, uh, we couldn't afford costumes, so let's just put them all on the stage in beige underwear, and you know we'll call it contemporary. <laughs> and I get that a lot of people fall back on that and I hate that but yeah so um, in terms of artistic wise I think that I spend a lot of time looking at shows and going oh, I could have done that better with you know this but um, I definitely don't watch shows and go well I'm better than him I should be there I don't do that anymore used to be a lot of animals associated with circus mm-hmm. it seems to have been not such a trend these days yeah so exotic animals were outlawed quite a while ago uh, I don't actually know the exact year, but it was so they stopped you being able to buy animals from going out of business zoos for circuses. It would have been at least six or seven years over that, probably around a decade ago. Um, there was a long time where if you already had an animal that was performing in the circus, you were allowed to keep it performing, but uh, you couldn't. Uh, and if, if you had two, like a male and female lion, you could breed a baby lion that could be born into the circus and be performed but now they're not even allowed to breed uh breed them into the circus so it was outlawed and then ultimately was um i guess it sort of petered itself out also uh public liability insurance around animals is intense it's full-on uh, and you've got to get a whole bunch of extra licenses for, for performing animals is that something that you like as the fact that the direction that circus has taken? This is a huge question. Um, it's a, and it, it turns a lot of people's uh, collars, no matter which side you take. Um, ultimately, I think it's like anything to do with animals. Um, you get caught up with the bad eggs, and there's a lot of bad eggs. And you can say that across anything that involves um, animals. My parents are big in, my father, sorry, is big into horse racing. A lot of people, especially the circus, will come to me and tell me how gross it is that my family does horse racing. And it's like, well, actually, sorry, you've never seen how my dad or our trainer that we've spent a long time finding is with the is with the horses, and they love the horses, you know. And that's the same with a lot of performing animals. You, you know, a lot of people focus on the four that end up on the news that are stuck in a cage the size of a pea box and all those sorts of things. But there are family circuses out there that you would not be able to separate the relationship that they have with their lions to their house cat or dog you know like they are part of the family they've got huge spaces and the you couldn't take the animal away because the animal would be equally as distressed about leaving now maybe there's a bit of stockholm syndrome or something like that in that but there are a lot of families out there that really care for their animals and they really you know they're again they're part of their livelihood outside of how they feel about animals you know you don't you don't own a race car and treat it like shit you, know? <laughs> you own a race car and you you treat it you put all of your money into it so that it can keep um doing good for you 
It's the same as a lot of animals in the circus. There are definitely some anim- some uh, circuses, less so in Australia, but a lot of overseas circuses that have really mistreated animals, and that's disgusting and that's not okay. Um, but ultimately, I'm okay with animals performing as long as I can't, as long as I don't see the animals being mistreated. It's impossible to know if the animal actually enjoys being on stage. You know, we, no, no one can actually know what a dog is feeling or a, a cat is or any animal is feeling. But um, as long as I don't think that that dog is living up or that animal is living a life that is horrible, um, then I am actually okay with it. I think I think. But I also can see why it's been taken out. I, I, yeah, you're never going to be able to provide a, a, a Sahara for a, an elephant to live on, and that elephant would ultimately be happier even in a zoo. So it's probably good that there are no more elephants in the in the circus or tigers or lions. But I don't judge those families for having had them because I think that they were ultimate. A lot of those families, I there's a family circus that have re- just recently retired their lions and um those lions are so well loved and cared for and the, that that family overspent on a property that so that the lions would have enough room to go to a when they retired and b between shows like they they were very very well cared for lions and i i don't I, you know you can't, i can't tell them that they were doing the wrong thing because they loved those those animals um but yes there are bad eggs and i'm not okay with bad eggs i'm not okay with mistreatment of animals across the board you don't get into the circus if you don't love animals i think or if you don't love a lot of things and i am not okay with any mistreatment of animals ever no matter what it is what's the direction then that you can see circus moving to in the next 50 years it's where it is now but further on so we're getting we're coming back to a lot of traditional sort of acrobatic skills um china and russia have been huge on that this whole time but they're able to share a lot more nowadays um again gravity and other myths i'm not a big fan of a lot of their shows but i'm a huge fan of well i, I know most of their cast so i love them but i'm also uh, a huge fan of what they're doing when it comes to recreating uh the acrobatic side of circus they are doing some things that are just mind-boggling uh and that's that's where we're by taking some of that sort of performative element out of the sh- out of circus not the performative element but the Again, the props that do the work for you. So taking the uh, taking the animals out means the uh, the humans have to work harder, and um, uh, we're probably going to come out of tents. I love. I would love to think that we're going to get to that level where we're as appreciated in theaters as, say, a ballet or an opera, because ultimately we're we're working just as hard. It must be difficult though when you've have to multi-skill as you say you're the usher you're on tent crew you're mm. doing so many and you're a performer uh is that a good thing or a bad thing that you have to so multi-skill it's good for me now uh because i intend on potentially turning my career at the end of my acro- of my performing life into that producer venue owner still performing but not acrobatic sort of side of things um but and I think this is true of just about every trad circus. The limit is pushed on how much work you're asked to do for the amount of money you're paid on, paid for each week. And that there are still people in that in that world taking advantage of the fact that they know that they're the only ones offering work. Because um, is there a lot of money to be made in it? You, you say they've overpaid to um, for a property to put lions on. Yeah, I have no idea. 
I have no idea how much money they're really making. I know what our average ticket sales are. I know what our average ticket price is. I look at that, but I have absolutely no idea what expenses are going on, on in the background, and it's impossible to know. All I know is that a lot of the trad circuses are continuing to go on, so they must be making enough money somewhere. Equally so, though, family circuses are the ones that are surviving the longest, and I think part of that must be that <laughs> they're relying on the fact that they don't have to pay their kids every week. <laughs> <laughs> so behind us is the dodge yeah are you a car guy a little bit yeah again i used to sell cars uh and then and i uh, am a bit of a yeah i have been definitely why I, cars when you were selling uh it was just the i it was a funny transition so i was managing a theater i moved to touring lighting design and then I moved from that into a full-time job at that company that was hiring me as a casual lighting designer. Uh, and the only full-time job they had was office sales. And then I wanted a commission and they couldn't afford to pay me a commission. They were sort of a young company and they were honest about it. And they were really cool about it. And so I looked for another sales job and cars was the easiest thing to get into. But I, but equally so, I liked cars. So I, it was good enough. Because we were talking before about how you thought Whack an, whack an electric engine or yeah. an electric motor yeah. in the Dodge. Yeah, which you should definitely do. <laughs> I, again, I, I, um, I'm a bit of an, I, I'm a bit of a, I think that electric cars are the way of the future. I think that internal combustion, as much as glorious as it is, and as great as it is, I think that um, internal combustion is a, it's a limited time. It's only got a limited time left. It, and it. Electricity just makes so much more sense. It produces more power. And once we figure out the whole charging thing, and I get it, especially in Australia, range anxiety is a big thing. But, um, but that's, that's a pretty easy, that will be a pretty easy problem to fix. Batteries will get better. And once that happens, we can power an electric car for free from the sun. And when people catch onto that properly and when it, the technology catches up, and internal combustion has got to be a limited time again in car sales i was lucky enough to drive quite a few very fast cars so i've been in the passenger seat of two different ferraris i've driven a porsche i've driven an audi r8 and i've driven a skyline gtr uh gorgeous cars incredible none of them were as fast as a tesla really really nothing kicks you in the balls hard enough as hard as a tesla does you put a, I've also driven a Model S and I've been in the passenger seat of a Performance Model 3. Um, my friend at, um, at my local archery club, he had a Model S and he put it in performance mode for me and let me drive it home one time. And it is scary how fast it is. It doesn't compare to any car that I've ever driven in my life. But the only thing it has, I've ever been able to compare it to is if you, you've ever been on the Gravitron at Dreamworld where it spins so fast it pushes you back into the wall. Yeah, that's driving a Tesla. That's hitting the that's hitting the accelerator on a Tesla. There's just nothing as fast as it. It is incredible. What's your dream car? Uh, currently, it's probably the Tesla Roadster when it comes out. Uh, I don't, wouldn't mind one of those electric Porsches either. But um, but it's definitely it's more and more electric. Sort of. <laughs> a Morgan Aerosport Four is the if I won the lotto, that's the car I would go out and buy. Which a uh, yeah, a Morgan Aero, Morgan Aero 4, like the modern one, but it's classic car look. I love them. I think they're gorgeous. 
But if I won the lotto, I'd go out and buy one of those, and then I'd probably I'd spend as much money as it cost me to convert it to an electric engine. I'll just stick to the Dodge. <laughs> <laughs> I think the Dodge is a great car, but I think that the Dodge is a, a perfect car for converting to an electric. I think that that would be so cool to be driving around Australia in an electric Dodge. Well, let's hope that you keep performing and get the venue that you mm. are aspiring to. Yeah. And you can afford your own Tesla. One day, maybe. <laughs> that or I'll just get a hand-me-down from someone, sort of, maybe. <laughs> Matt Casey, thanks for joining us over the bonnet. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure.